0: 2 Kings chapter 2. We ended last week's lesson by reading that Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. God took him up. And after the lesson, the pastor and I were discussing that passage. He commented that Elijah and Elisha must have been walking so closely together that it took Those chariots of fire and horses of fire to part them. Now, where were all the others? They were standing afar off, weren't they? So the chariot didn't have to part Elijah from Elisha, from the sons of the prophets, from all of the other onlookers, just from Elisha. And that separation was to make sure that one stayed here and one went. Elisha would stay, and now we're going to see Elisha's response to this significant event of Elijah being taken up into the whirlwind. Or taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, if you'll look with me in verse 12, for those of you just joining us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And Elisha saw it, and he cried. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Just to keep up with the pronouns in here, it said Elisha saw it. And what he said was, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now he's through speaking. And he, that is, Elisha, saw him, Elijah, no more. And he, Elisha, took hold of his own clothes and rent them into two pieces. He tore them. So Elisha cried what he saw. He saw whom he called his father, Elijah. He saw the chariot of Israel. He saw the horsemen. And what a close relationship Elisha and Elijah had that one should call the other father. Now, Scripture doesn't indicate to me that they knew each other for a long time, chronologically, as many of you have known each other since grade school. Nelda and Ann have been, and and I guess Brother Ronnie here, Been friends for a long time. I don't think that's the nature of the closeness here. I believe this was a closeness that was doctrinal. It was spiritual. They were of a kindred spirit. Do you know that even now, I feel closer to our brethren. Take Brother Keith from South Africa. Or take Brother Wisdom or Brother Noel I feel like I could sit next to one of them on a plane and we would never stop talking all the way to our destination, whereas others whom I've known for more years than they, who may not be spiritually minded, well, we would run out of spiritual things to talk about in a hurry because they'd be uncomfortable with them, as many people are. In fact, even in church, there are people who are uncomfortable talking about spiritual things, and I'm so thankful that here we have many who are spiritually minded. And I wish the rest would come and see how much fun it is to get into God's Word and study it. I pray we'd be able to continue to do that today. But what a close relationship between these two. You know, Elisha had a biological father. And his name was Shaphat of Abel-Meholah. And you find that back in 1 Kings 19 So Elisha was not replacing his own father with Elijah. The relationship between the prophets was a spiritual one. And Elisha had prayed in our last study that a double portion of Elijah's spirit would be upon him. That's what he wanted from Elijah or from God. And as we'll see... Elisha is going to take up Elijah's mantle, that cloak, that coat that Elijah wore. In, in doing so, he will take up Elijah's doctrine and continue to preach that. And as much as Elisha will be the continuation of Elijah's ministry, Elisha could rightly call Elijah my father." And Elijah called him my son. In the text, in verse 12, it says, in the middle of the text, And he saw him no more. So we take it that he saw him until then. He saw him go up. I don't know how far he went up before he stopped seeing him. But at some point, he saw him no more. And this was the sign of which Elijah spoke back in verse 10. If you look back up in verse 10, Elijah said to Elisha, Thou hast asked a hard thing, nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. So this was a moment Elisha was waiting for to confirm whether his prayer had been honored, that a double portion of Elijah's spirit would be upon him. And because he saw Elijah taken up, at least to a point, then that was confirmation that he would have a double portion of Elijah's spirit resting upon him. So this was a, a big moment for him, even though his master had been taken from his head, yet there was a blessing to be associated With that. Now, the spirit of Elijah was definitely upon Elisha, and it would one day be upon John the Baptist and upon the least in the kingdom of heaven and so forth. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, there is a passage about Elijah returning. And it's a long enough passage where if you'll take a moment, just turn to the book of Malachi. Keep your place in Second Kings. It's the last book in the Old Testament, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. If you go to Matthew, then go back to the left. One book. Malachi chapter 4. I can hear pages turning, but I can't hear you scrolling, so if you're doing it on your phone, you're probably already there. All right, keeping in mind what we read, listen as I read from Malachi chapter 4. I'll start in verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, That is, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name, this is kind of like the book of Jude, isn't it? It separates. But unto you who fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is speaking of the day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest i come and smite the earth with a curse a lot of things stood out to me in this passage but two in particular one when the day of the lord comes it's going to come with a fire that will burn up all the wicked as stubble and two elijah will be the one sent to warn the wicked about that great day that comes with fire. And with those two things in mind, remember back to the three events in Elijah's life, wherein he called down fire from heaven after issuing warnings to the wicked, after issuing warnings to the unbelievers. First, to the priests of Baal in the grove and he said, go ahead, build the altar to your God, do all of that. And they cut themselves and danced on their altar, and they couldn't call down fire. And Elijah said, in a very short prayer, the fire came down and consumed them, consumed the, the, the sacrifice that, uh, that Elijah made in, in his altar, the one that was waterlogged, if you remember. And then Elijah commanded that those prophets of Baal be destroyed. So Elijah's reputation, at least among men, for calling down fire was well established even at that point. But yet two other times, you remember the mercenaries that Ahaziah sent out to capture Elijah and bring him to the king? And Elijah said, if, if God is God, fire is going to come down, and it did. It consumed the first group of 51, and it consumed the next group of 51, And so there were three events in Elijah's life wherein he called down fire from heaven after issuing a warning to the unbelievers. So when Elijah is sent forth again before the day of the Lord, and what did Jesus say? He said about John the Baptist, if you'll receive it, Elijah's come already. John the Baptist came warning people. He came preaching the kingdom of God and uh, making straight the way of the Lord as it was prophesied of him. And so, when Elijah is sent forth again in the day of the Lord, or before the day of the Lord, his credibility will be well established. That is, when he says stuff is going to burn, you can count on it. And yet, even in that day, many, most, will not believe his voice just like they didn't believe it in the Old Testament. When he called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, and God honored that, from that moment on, when Elijah warned anybody they should have believed him. But they didn't. So if, and I know I don't speak to those people in here, but to some who may be watching on the internet who say, well, if we just had some visible evidence that Jesus was real, we would believe on him. No, you wouldn't. It's not the visible evidence that's the problem because Jesus gave much visible evidence in his day, and yet most did not believe on him. So this is very interesting to me that Elijah, of all the prophets that could be named here, Elijah was the one who was associated with warning the people before the day of the Lord. And that that day of the Lord was going to come as fire is going to be like an oven and burn up all the wicked and all the stubble. Furthermore, just as Elijah and Elisha smote the waters of Jordan, causing them to dry up, and we'll see that in just a moment with Elisha, God will smite the earth with a curse. And when Elijah called down fire from heaven those three times, those events weren't just singular events we pluck out of history, but they all pointed toward that great and dreadful day of the Lord. In other words, prophets, if you look at what happened at Mount Carmel when Elijah called down fire in a seemingly impossible situation, If you look at that, then you need to know that the day of the Lord is going to come. And it's going to be worse than that. This is but a a type, but a shadow. If you look at all of those wicked men that Ahaziah sent to capture Elijah, and God made them crispy critters, didn't he? They were carbon dust when it was all over. Then the great and dreadful day of the Lord when it comes will be much worse than that. It's a consuming fire. And yet, we who are alive today have all of this witness in the Bible. We have all this testimony in the Bible. God warns what will happen through his prophets to the unbelievers and the wicked. The unbelievers and the wicked don't repent. God follows through with their destruction. And then again, and again, and again. And so when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to man... Who is broken, man who is sinful, and who is helpless and hopeless in his sin. And we say, just as surely as these things came to pass in the Bible, they will come to pass on you who are unbelievers if you don't repent and put your faith in what Jesus did to get rid of your sin. And yet they still say, I don't believe. So don't get too frustrated with yourself if you think, well, maybe I'm not saying it right. Maybe I'm not smooth enough in my presentation of the gospel, of Bible truth, for people to believe it. It's not you. You're a witness. It's their unbelief. It's their hard hearts. And we know it's true. And we know it's yet to come. But the unbelievers in those days, just as they were in the days of Elijah, will mock and they will scoff at this great witness. So just like the high priests of Baal in the grove, and like the mercenaries of Ahab, and like many others who trample upon God's word, they're going to learn the hard way that God is not mocked. whatsoever men soweth that shall he also reap. Now turn back in your text to your text in Second Kings chapter two. Let's continue reading in verse 12. In the middle of the verse, it said, And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Now, this is Elisha. We're back on Elisha here. He took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. This was a sign of intense mourning. And you see this in the Bible You'll see them throwing ashes on their head, dressing in sackcloth, tearing their clothes, while grieving the death, the passing of one of their loved ones, perhaps of Moses. In the case of King Saul, when he died, although he had been David's great enemy, he had made David an enemy. David loved Saul, but Saul had made David his enemy out of jealousy. And even after all of that, When David heard of the death of King Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 11, listen to David's response. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. He rent his clothes even though King Saul That one who unjustly sought his life time and again, tried to kill him, he rent his clothes in mourning and grief. How much more Elisha for Elijah, his spiritual father, the one with whom he walked so closely that chariots of fire had to part them asunder. And I believe it was also symbolic that Elisha tore his clothes into pieces One of the things this represented was the truth that Elisha the farmer was no more. He was Elisha the prophet. 24-7, no turning back. Remember what he did with his yoke of oxen? He slew them and he used the wood to burn a fire and he fed the people and he followed Elijah. Now verse 13. Elijah's gone. So if you needed a place in your Bible to mark down that Elijah is physically gone, here it is right here. But we're going to continue to see the spirit that worked in Elijah work in Elisha because God's spirit never disappears, does it? Even though Elijah seemed to have disappeared from the sight of Elisha. Verse 13, he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. Now, taking up Elijah's mantle was very symbolic of taking up Elijah's ministry. Taking up his mantle, he took up his ministry. It wasn't the mantle that held the power. The mantle was a bunch of material stitched together, and that was it. It was the Lord who showed power through that mantle. Just like the ministry was not just Elisha's ministry, It was God's ministry shown powerfully through Elijah and now through Elisha. It wasn't Aaron's rod that was powerful. It was God who showed power through it. He imparted the power through that rod. And also true is that neither Moses nor Aaron nor Elijah nor Elisha were powerful, except the Lord showed himself powerfully in them and through them. If you look at some of the individual, well, the ones who are named here Moses, in the moments of weakness in the flesh he had, you're reminded he's just a man. He's just a man. Aaron, the same way, you think, wow, that's the great high priest. And yet, in that dark moment in his life, he allowed the people to worship that golden calf while Moses was in the mountain. And Elijah, hiding out there in the wilderness, telling the Lord, oh God, they're seeking my life. Basically, I'm the only one serving you. And God said, no, you're not. 7,000 besides you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, get up. And then Elisha, as we'll see and study, he is also just a man. And what we learn here is that whether through a person, an animal, such as Balaam's donkey, or through an an object, everything God uses is an instrument. And if you remember that you're an instrument, it's kind of like remembering that you're a servant, isn't it? It has a humbling effect, and it should. It reminds us who we are, what we are, who we're not, and what we're not. An example, we normally think of an instrument in terms of music, don't we? Think of pianos, flutes, violins, which in Texas we call fiddles, in case you didn't know. Our California friends, we call them fiddles. It's a violin. It's just as much a violin as if Heatsock Pearlman was playing it in a in a symphony. But it's played a little differently in Texas. Even our voices are instruments. And in our songbooks, we have a, a collection of wonderful hymns, songs. And these hymns are an arrangement of notes and markings such as flats and sharps and rests, staffs and clefts and measures and bars, we call the divisions thereof, various verses, all of that is what we call a hymn. But in order for us to hear that, can you all hear that right now? You can't hear that, can you? But in order for us to hear the music that is put on this page for us, something has to happen to move those notes from the pages to our ears. And those things are called instruments. So if I sing a cappella, then that instrument, as scratchy as it may sound, conveys the music from the page to your ears. Now, lest I think too much of myself, I am just an instrument. And when all those notes are properly sung or played by the piano, then we get to enjoy the beautiful sounds they make. But if the notes just remain on the page, written on the page, and that's it, then we don't get to hear the song. We don't get to enjoy it, do we? It's contained within this page or within these pages. The difference is the instrument. The instrument doesn't write the song A composer did that. The instrument doesn't hear the song. It doesn't sing the song on its own without the musical notes as its basis. It simply allows the written song to be sung, played, learned, and then enjoyed. Now, Elijah, Elisha, the mantle, Balaam's donkey, and we are all God's instruments, and through those instruments, he teaches us his will. He teaches us his word. If God had never caused man to write down his word, would his word still be his word? Absolutely. Never changes. But he used an instrument, a man, to put his word down on the written parchment. So now we have another instrument. We have a Bible. And because of those instruments, God's word and power have been revealed to man. What is the instrument by which you are supposed to hear the gospel? It's the preacher, isn't it? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall you hear what's in here without a singer or one who plays it, an instrument? So what's a preacher? He's an instrument. Our learning point about instruments is this. Without God's power, an instrument is nothing, whether it be a person, an animal, or a mantle. So remember that about this mantle. And not knowing this truth or not receiving this truth is one of the things that many of the churches in the world, the so-called churches have eaten as their poison if you've ever been into let's just pick a Catholic church and all of the things that are in there they're nothing more than things are they? just like this is a thing and yet the statue of some saint or of the supposed statue of the Virgin Mary, whatever they call it, they bow to that before they get in their seats. See, we don't ask you all to do that. We want you to bow your heart to the Lord. You don't need to bow your knee in here to anybody or to anything. It says here in the end of verse 13, he went back that is, to the bank of the Jordan River. Verse 14, And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, that means here and there, one side to the other. And Elisha went over. It says he took the mantle of Elijah, as we studied earlier, he took it both as a physical article of clothing and a type of the doctrine and power of God that God had expressed through Elijah. Now he would express it through Elisha. It says that fell from him. That tells us that the mantle literally fell from Elijah's body as he was taken up. So his physical body really was taken up. And then Elisha says, as he smites the waters of Jordan, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now, he's not mocking God, and you'll see that by, you should already know that through his testimony up to this point, but you're going to see that Elisha was no mocker of God. So don't think that when he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah, he's doubting or mocking God. He simply desired that God would show himself openly at this time it would be a confirmation to Elisha that, yes, he really did receive that double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And so Elisha did what Elijah did. Don't miss that. He smote the water with the mantle. Elisha didn't try to form a new contemporary ministry. He didn't say... I'll use my own mantle. I have one. He probably did. He was a farmer out in the elements. He probably had a mantle. But he'd already torn his clothes and left them behind, hadn't he? Elisha didn't say, You know, with this mantle, Elijah smote the waters, but I shall not do so. Instead, I shall lay it calmly beside the waters. It's worth learning that the continuation of the Lord's church on this earth does not require a doctrinal update, a new trend, or anything else other than taking the same mantle used by Elijah and trusting that it is still sufficient for the work of the Lord. We update paint, furniture, clothing it was up to me, I'd be wearing Wranglers just like I did in high school, and I still have them, and they have been cool and not cool and cool and not cool for my whole life, and I've always had Wranglers. So we update those kinds of things, but we don't update the Bible. We may have translations that reflect the current vernacular so people can understand it. That's not what I'm talking about. We don't update God's way of doing things because there is no update. He does things the same way now as he did 6,000 years ago, as he did 2,000 years ago, and he tells us in his word. We're not to add or subtract anything from it. Now this mantle, this garment or robe, is what's in view here. And the one in which we're interested is not the actual robe Elijah wore, but the robe of righteousness given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ when we are saved. Just as that mantle signaled or was a type of the ministry of Elijah passed to Elisha, there will be those, and I'm sure there were in that day, who worshiped the mantle instead of the God of the mantle. Just like there were those who worshiped the creator or the creature more than the creator. And it's this robe of righteousness that we pass on as good enough. We pass it on by preaching the gospel of salvation. So Elijah's mantle and his ministry was passed to Elisha. Elisha smote the waters with the same mantle in the same way that Elijah did. Tells us he believed Elijah's way of doing it was the right way to do it. And there was no need to change it. And when we preach the gospel of salvation, we don't preach another gospel, which is not another. We preach that our robes of righteousnesses, just as Elisha's former clothing, are as filthy rags in the sight of God. They're not fit for the journey. And that we need to be clothed in the robe of Jesus' righteousness instead. See how those link together? Now, Elisha rent his robe, he laid it aside, and he accepted the robe worn by Elijah. I can't help but see the gospel in this. And when we're saved, that's what we do. We lay aside the filthy garments that we wear, not this, but the garments of flesh. And they're the ones that are spotted by sin. And then we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus our Savior. Now look back in verse 14. Verse 14. At the end, it says, And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. He could not have crossed that river on dry ground by doing anything differently than Elijah did. Back in verse 8. And we can't cross from death into life, from darkness to light, by doing something different than our Christian forefathers, such as John the Baptist, such as Abraham, such as Abel the prophet, the first one prophet who was ever killed. Look now in verse 15. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. These were the same sons of the prophets who earlier in this chapter reminded Elisha, mockingly it seemed, that God's going to take your master away from your head today. And yet they confessed here, the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. You notice these sons of the prophet, it said they saw all this with their eyes. Had they believed it by faith, they would not have stood afar off. But they wanted to see if this was real. And it said in verse 15, And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. They came to meet him. Why did they have to come to meet him? Because they stood afar off back in verse 7. And now they came to meet him only after seeing with their eyes that mighty work rather than believing it was true. You know, if these sons of the prophets had really believed that God would take only Elijah in that whirlwind, then they would have been content to stand right there next to Elijah and Elisha and say, we're not going to be taken in the whirlwind because God said he's just taking Elijah. He's not going to take Elisha. He's not going to take us. They would not have felt the need to stand afar off, but they did. And so now they came to meet him. And it says they bowed themselves to the ground before him. Oh, now there's no more mocking. There's no more cruelly reminding Elisha that God would take away his master today. And you know, these types of religious folks are present even in our day. I call them bandwagon clergy. I used to call the high school basketball fans who showed up only for the playoffs bandwagon fans. They weren't there through the thick and thin, were they? But I call these bandwagon clergy. They don't want to take any risks, but they sure will follow someone who already has and who came out on the other side. They follow success, but they flee failure. So they're not dependable at all. So beware of people who fawn over you with compliments when you are prospering. See what happens when things go south. Verse 16 And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. Before reading this verse, if you thought, Well, maybe these sons of the prophets have repented. Perhaps they were now ready to trust what Elisha said and did. Well, this verse would cause me to think that's not true. These men still expressed doubt about what they had seen. They expressed doubt about God's grace and love toward Elijah. Would God take the prophet he chose And through whom he or with whom he walked through those dark valleys Would he take that prophet up high enough in the sky and then just drop him down, crush him on a mountain or in a valley, like a bird of prey would a snake or a mouse? And that's appears to be what these men thought. They said, Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And this was the reason they gave for wanting to send a search party out for Elijah's body. The underlying reason for this was unbelief. The same type of unbelief the Pharisees had in Jesus' day. They were willingly ignorant of God's purpose in taking up Elijah. God's purpose wasn't to cast him headlong down onto some mountain. If God wanted to kill Elijah, he could have done it with a spoken word. Verse 17, let's look at the end of verse uh, 16. He said, you shall not send. So Elisha's first answer here to these men who said, let's send a search party out. His first answer was strong. It was full of conviction. You shall not send. To willingly send these men on this mission would have been to agree with them that maybe God dropped him off somewhere accidentally. Maybe God didn't do what you, what he said he'd do, and Elisha would have none of it, as though God had played hide and seek with Elijah's body. And in verse 17 it says, And when they urged him still, urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days and but found him not. They urged him, they they pressed him, they pushed him. You can imagine all the, the chatter. Until he was ashamed, that is, confounded or shamed. And it shows us that as faithful as Elisha was, his flesh was weak just like ours. He was subject to those times of weakness. In in that moment, when his ears had been tuned to a spiritual radio frequency from the Holy Spirit, he tuned them to the, the sayings of man, to the urging of man. He tried to please the sons of the prophets rather than rebuking them just for that moment. He said, send, almost as if to say, just go. If that's what you want to do, I've already said don't go, but if you're bent on it, just go. He's just getting them off his back. And it says of their three-day arduous journey, they found him not, of course not. He was taken up. God did not drop him off on a mountain or in a valley where they surely searched for him. And because we're not specifically told what happened to Elijah's body after he was taken up, many theories have been formed about that by theologians throughout the ages. And I could spend a lot of time going through them to give you some ideas, but in my study, I can't conclusively state exactly what happened to Elijah's body after it was taken up. And I believe we'll stop right there and I'll give you some scriptures that might get you to thinking about it. We'll do that next week as we finish up verse 17. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for those who came to hear your word taught. Thank you for the spirit of God who is our teacher and for the word of God which is our text and now, Lord, as we continue into our 11 o'clock hour, I pray, Father, you give our pastor that same mind of Christ as he preaches and that your word would be found precious to all who hear it. And if there is one here who is lost without Christ, I pray they would trust him today. And, Lord, for the Christians who are here who are in different stages of spiritual maturity, I pray that for each one you'd edify us through your word. Help us to encourage one another and so much the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. It's in his name we pray. Amen.